Well, it seems like we've just begun our conference and now we begin the last day. I wish we could just build three tabernacles right here and stay. And uh, I've enjoyed so much being able to get to know you, uh, be able to visit at breaks and interact as we walk to and fro. And uh, I'm so thankful for this time that we are able to spend together. And I think it's a great encouragement to our hearts and our souls. I've said that uh, as we're out in the pastorate, sometimes it can be a lonely experience and um, we are sometimes isolated from other kindred spirits and like-minded brothers. And so for us to come together uh, as we have for these few days, I think enriches us, but it also encourages us. And I think of that proverb, as iron sharpens iron, so one man another. I need to be sharpened, you need to be sharpened. And when we come together, we have this mutual ministry with one another. So I'm thankful for this time. I'm so grateful that you've chosen to come and to be a part of this conference. And I can only pray that God's richest blessing will be upon your labors for the Lord. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn yet again with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And we have some unfinished business um, we began looking at this section yesterday and we were unable to complete it. You need to start listening quicker uh, and that would help us get through this. Um, yesterday when I asked John MacArthur about uh, beginning with one message and it becomes a series, my wife said to me this morning, I know why you asked him that question. Uh, I do have a tendency to do that as well. But we, we do want to be over prepared, I think, as we step into the pulpit. And the challenge really is to get it all in, not to be underprepared and not have enough to say and we just begin to ramble, etc. And sometimes a great message does need to become a two-part message, and that's fine. And there is continuity as we extend uh, into the next message as we be- continue to work our way through a passage, and that's what we're doing um, this morning. So I want to begin by reading the passage. And why do I want to begin by reading the passage? Read the text, explain the text, apply the text. So I want to begin by reading the text. 1 Corinthians 2, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthians. And he writes, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power." So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages... To our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, 
For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. This text focuses upon the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, and specifically the preaching of Christ crucified. And we're saying what Paul is saying, that this is the kind of preaching that God blesses. When we make much of His Son, when we magnified the Lord Jesus Christ, this thrills the heart of the Father. It fulfills the ministry of God the Holy Spirit for the Lord Jesus Christ to be in the preeminent place in our preaching and in our ministry. Michael Horton has written a book entitled Christless Christianity that drives home this very point. Horton's book comments on the church in America that has become more and more, he says, Christless. Horton writes, The church in America today is so obsessed with being practical, relevant, helpful, successful, and perhaps even well-liked, that it nearly mirrors the world itself. Aside from the packaging, there is nothing that cannot be found in most churches today that could not be satisfied by any number of secular programs and self-help groups. Horton calls such religion and churchianity Christless Christianity. They have everything except the main thing. They have everything except the number one thing. They have everything except Him who is the Alpha and the Omega, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the sum and substance of it all. Horton writes, the focus still seems to be on us and our activity rather than on God and His work in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ <clears throat> is to these in Christless Christianity, He is a coach, small c, with a good game plan for our victory, rather than a Savior, capital S, who has already achieved it for us. Salvation is more a matter of having our best life now. Sound familiar? And that's the problem. It is the best now. It'll never be in eternity. Having our best life now than having been saved from God's judgment by God Himself. Close quote. In short, Horton warns against a Christless Christianity. This is a danger into which many fall in ministry. And we need to be reminded as well that Jesus Christ must be the very focal point of our preaching, the magnification and the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even God the Father has exalted His own Son and given Him the place of greatest authority at His right hand. In the days of the first century, the church 
at Corinth was suffering a similar problem, a Christless Christianity. The preaching of Christ and Him crucified was being minimized in Corinth. Christ was left standing in the shadows off to the side, and instead in the spotlight was coming a steady diet of Greek philosophy and secular thinking that had Christian vocabulary attached to it. It had a Christian label, but it was the same bottle of poison. It was Greek wisdom that elevated man with secular thinking and displaced the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Likewise, there was an overt emphasis upon the Holy Spirit at the expense of the Lord Jesus Christ. And consequently, there was the Corinthian preoccupation with the gifts of the Spirit rather than the giver of the Spirit. And corresponding emotional extremes with those who were in Corinth. And Paul will address that later in chapters 12 through 14. And so as Paul now writes, he front loads at the beginning of this epistle on the front porch in chapters 1 and 2 that the church at Corinth must come back to the priority and the preeminence and the centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ and he must be front and center in the preaching of the Word of God. That is what is driving Paul as he writes this. And I wonder as we would evaluate our own ministries, we who sign off on the Nicene Creed, which we just read, but I wonder if in practice there could be placing Christ to the side and our putting into the center place practical, relevant, success-building, life-elevating type of preaching that neglects the head of the church, the Savior of sinners, the Lord of heaven and earth, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yesterday morning, we began looking at this passage, and just to remind you, we noted in verses 1 and 2 the preeminence of Christ. We noted how Paul did not come in verse 1, and then how he did come in verse 2. He says he did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom. The superiority of speech refers to the delivery. We talked about that yesterday. A manipulative technique-oriented type of speech intended to sway the audience by the delivery, not by the substance of what is being said. And he said he did not come with wisdom. That wisdom refers not to God's wisdom, but to man's wisdom, secular thinking, worldly thinking. Paul says, I did not come that way proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Those streams cannot mix together. They are so antithetical. We cannot preach the testimony of God and worldly wisdom. They are mutually exclusive. It is either or. It can never be both and. And we noted in verse 2 
He said, I determined to know nothing among you. That's a very strong way to put that. Paul's being very emphatic by stating it in the negative. And that is something for us to learn. Sometimes when we truly want to get a point across, stating it in the negative has a certain edge about it, does it not? And it sets hooks down into our mind. That's what Paul is doing here. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Men, let us recommit ourselves to the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us, by God's grace, reaffirm our commitment to preach Christ and Him crucified. Let us be those who uphold a bloody Savior, a crucified Savior, who became sin for His people, who suffered and bled and died upon that cross. And not only is that the message for justification and redemption and reconciliation, it is also the message for sanctification as well. For Paul will say to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Even the Christian life, even sanctification is rooted and grounded in the bloody cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Not only did he die for me, but I died with him. Not only did he die for my sins, but I died to sin as he died upon that cross 2,000 years ago. And so the sum and the substance, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end of our preaching must be rooted and grounded in Christ and Him crucified. So how will we preach Christ and Him crucified? How will we hold up such a weighty message? It will be only by the power of the Holy Spirit. No message has ever been entrusted to mortal men that had greater gravity and gravitas and weightiness than the message that has been placed and deposited in our trust as we preach Christ and Him crucified. Our flesh is too weak. Our mortal body is too fragile and frail. We must have the divine energy and the supernatural power that comes from God by the Holy Spirit to preach Christ and Him crucified. And beginning in verse 3, we will see now the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our paraclete. He's come alongside of us and He is in us to help us make much of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no jealousy within the Godhead. God the Father is pointing to the Son and saying, Behold my Son, listen to Him. God the Holy Spirit is pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ and magnifying Him and holding Him up and holding us up so that we may hold forth Christ. So let's look now at verse 3. Beginning in verse 3, I want you to see now the second main heading We've seen the preeminence of Christ, verses 1 and 2. Now, second, the power of the Spirit, verses 3 through 5. 
Paul reflects back on that time when he was in Corinth there for 18 months on his second missionary journey. And he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. This is a time in which Paul is being very transparent with the Corinthians. And what he is saying is, I did not swagger into town with a macho attitude. As I came to you, I came in weakness and in fear and trembling. Paul came to Corinth after being beaten and imprisoned in Philippi. He had just been run out of town, literally, out of Thessalonica and Berea. He had been scoffed at and ridiculed in Athens. Every town, every city into which Paul has has entered before coming to Corinth, he has been opposed, he's been persecuted, he's been imprisoned, he's been flogged, he's been beaten, he's been mocked, he has been taunted. And as he now arrives in town in Corinth, he comes in much human weakness in physical weakness, in emotional weakness. But it is in this weakness that God's power is made strong. There is no man too weak for God not to use. Only men who are too strong. God cannot use men who are strong in themselves. God only uses men who are so weak that they must trust in the Lord. They must rely upon His grace. Paul was not trusting in theatrics or in techniques. He was trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit. These three words, this triad, weakness, fear, trembling, does not mean that Paul was intellectually weak. He could have matched his intellect with anyone in Corinth. It does not mean that he had the fear of man. Nor does it mean that he was trembling at the thought of public speaking. Rather, his fear, his weakness, his trembling, I believe is rooted and grounded in the seriousness, the seriousness with which he took his mission. He is preaching with heaven and hell hanging in the balances. He is preaching with the eternal souls of men lying before him. He is preaching, as Baxter said, as a dying man to dying men, as never to preach again. He is preaching as a a man who knows that one day he will stand at the judgment seat of Christ and give an account to the Lord, and the sobriety of this grips him just as he will write to Timothy later that we looked at two days uh, ago, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom. This has gripped the heart and the soul of Paul. Again, he does not come to Corinth with a swagger. He comes in weakness recognizing the extreme importance of the commission that he has received from the Lord in utter dependence 
Spurgeon once said, Luther said he could face his enemies boldly, but could not go up his pulpit stairs without his knees knocking together. Preaching is not child's play. It is not a thing to be done without labor and anxiety. It is a solemn work, Spurgeon said. It is an awful work. It is the weight of eternity placed upon our shoulders. I presently am reading much about John Knox and writing a series of articles for a publication on John Knox. This is the 500-year anniversary of the birth of John Knox, and so I'm just saturated at the moment with John Knox. Last night I was having to remind myself about George Whitfield because I'm so focused on, on John Knox right now. And I love when John Knox was called into the ministry there in St. Andrews. He had been the, the sword bearer literally for George Whishart, who was a, a reformed preacher in, in Scotland. And Whishart was literally martyred there in, in St. Andrews, put to death. Knox was his sword bearer and, and drew the sword ready to physically protect Whishart from the Roman Catholic Church that, that burned him alive. And of course, Whishart uttered those famous words to young John Knox, his disciple, his understudy, one sacrifice is enough. You flee to preach another day. So John Knox literally began his entrance into the ministry when the one who was discipling him was martyred in St. Andrews. He goes into the castle in St. Andrews, and it becomes immediately apparent as he is tutoring and as he is teaching a few through the gospel of John, this man is uniquely gifted by God with the God-given ability to teach the Word. And the one who is presiding over the assembly there in St. Andrew's castle, in the middle of a worship service, announced that John Knox is called into the ministry. Did so publicly without having previously discussed this with Knox. <laughs> and Knox was so overwhelmed at the responsibility of standing before the people of God and opening the Bible and saying, thus says the Lord, that John Knox ran out of the chapel, burst into tears, went to his room, and locked the door, overwhelmed with the thought of being called into the ministry. He was there in his room with much weakness and fear and trembling. And over a short period of time, the hand of God began to work that into the soul and the heart of, of John Knox until he realized, yes, God has laid his hand upon me. Men, this is a good place for us to always be.
in much fear and weakness and trembling. Because that is when we are most consciously aware of the divine call of God upon our lives, the weightiness of what He has called us to. And it is only in our weakness are we fully relying upon the omnipotence of heaven mediated by the Holy Spirit into our lives. Let's continue to look. He says in verse 4, and my message and my preaching. Now note, negative denial were not in persuasive words of wisdom. He, He will tell us again what it was not before he will tell us what it is. He wants there to be no possibility of misunderstanding what he says. Now, in verse 4, I want you to note the word message and the word preaching. You see how at the beginning of verse 4, and my message and my preaching, his message refers to his doctrine. His preaching refers to his delivery. Paul is consciously aware of both the substance of the message and the style of the delivery. And he is consciously aware that both matter to God. Not only must the message stay the same, but the method must stay the same as well. Paul is committed to the preaching of the Word of God. God had only one son, and he made him a preacher. He didn't make him a dramatist. He didn't make him an actor. He didn't make him a clown. He made him a preacher. And Paul says, in my message and my preaching, were not in persuasive words of wisdom. These words at the end of verse 4 again cover these two categories. When he says persuasive words, that refers to his delivery. Wisdom refers to his doctrine. The wisdom here refers to the wisdom of man, man man-centered thinking, man's perspective on the issues and the problems of life. And man's wisdom is always exalting man and massaging man's ego and is always elevating man. I told you yesterday morning that humanistic wisdom is always, has this mantra that from man and through man and to man are all things to man be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul says, I did not come with a worldly message and I did not come with a worldly method of conveying this truth to you. But, in the middle of verse 4, but, now the positive assertion, this is how I did come to you but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. The word demonstration here is a a term used in a court of law for a testimony that would be given to submit a witness or to submit evidence. And the term signifies that the Holy Spirit demonstrated His power in Paul, as Paul preached Christ and him crucified. 
It was God the Holy Spirit who was holding up the arms of the Apostle Paul as he preached Christ and him crucified. When he says, of the Spirit and of power, that is an emphatic way of saying the power of the Holy Spirit that was evident in Paul as he preached. This is exactly what Jesus promised the disciples. In Luke 24, in verse 49, Jesus said, I am sending forth the promise of my Father to you, and you will be clothed with power from on high. And then in Acts 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. It is this power of the Holy Spirit that God grants to His men whom He has called to stand on their feet before an open Bible and to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We will never know the power of God more in our ministries than when we are magnifying the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we make much of Christ, God the Holy Spirit releases His power in us and supernaturally enables us to to exalt Christ and our preaching becomes a coronation of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul said to the Thessalonians, I would remind you, in chapter 1, verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only. Paul loves starting sentences with a negative denial and then coming in with a knockout punch with the positive assertion. Our gospel did not come to you in word only. The word only is important because it did come in word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. There must be the words that go forth. But the word only says there had to be more than just mere words. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And this full conviction begins in the preacher as the power of the Holy Spirit is operative in his life. As we stand to preach, we believe what we believe even yet deeper with full conviction. And that is what produces the passion, is the full conviction. And it is being generated by God the Holy Spirit in the depths of our soul. Paul says, this is how I came to you. Jesus Christ was in the centerpiece Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And it was the Holy Spirit who was undergirding and enabling me to preach Him. Notice verse 5. Here is why both the message and the method matter to God. We may be saying, well, I'm, I'm there that the message is the same. But why can't I have a different method. He tells us why. Verse 5, so that, this introduces now an explanation, so that your faith, referring to the Corinthians, would not rest 
on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. It is God's purpose and God's plan to work through weak preachers who are empowered by the Holy Spirit to proclaim Christ and Him crucified so that men do not put their faith in man-centered gimmicks, man-contrived techniques, man-conceived manipulations, but that men's faith would rest in Christ and Him alone. That the faith would not be even in the messenger, but in the message, as the message goes forth in the weakness of human flesh. flesh. If our preaching is marked by the superiority of speaking techniques that plays to the gallery, that tickles ears, then the faith of our listeners is built upon our techniques and not upon the Savior Himself. But if we preach Christ crucified in the power of the Holy Spirit, those who hear us have no place to put their faith except in Jesus Christ alone. And as we preach in the power of the Holy Spirit, there is much fervency, there is much urgency, there is much intensity that the Holy Spirit generates within us as we feel very deeply the truth of Christ and Him crucified. The noted Puritan Richard Baxter once wrote a book, Reformed Pastor. The focus was upon those men who were in the ministry, they must reform to the standard of Scripture. And in this very famous book, Richard Baxter addresses the clergy in England who had become very monotone, very unenergetic, very blasé in the pulpit. Baxter writes, What? Speak coldly for God and for men's salvation? Can we believe that our people must be converted or condemned? and yet speak in a drowsy tone? In the name of God, brethren, labor to awaken your own hearts before you go to the pulpit, that you may be fit to awaken the hearts of sinners. Remember, they must be awakened or be damned, and that a sleepy preacher will hardly awaken drowsy sinners." Though you give the holy things of God the highest praises in words, yet if you do it coldly, you will seem by your manner to unsay what you say. It is a kind of contempt of great things, Baxter says, especially of so great things to speak of them without affection and without fervency. 
close quote. We unsay what we say if we say it without our own affections and our own soul being stirred by the Holy Spirit of God, causing us to believe yet all the more deeply the message that we bring. Martin Lloyd-Jones has said much the same in his book, Preachers and and Preaching. I read this yesterday, but I, I want us to hear this again. The doctor says, if there is no power, there is no preaching. True preaching, after all, is God acting. It is not just a man uttering words. It is God using him. He is being used of God. He is under the influence of the Holy Spirit. It is God giving power and enabling through the Spirit to the preacher in order that he may do this work in a manner that lifts it up beyond the efforts and endeavors of a man. He is being used by the Spirit and becomes the channel through whom the Spirit works. The Holy Spirit gives clarity of thought, clarity of speech, ease of utterance, a great sense of authority and confidence as you are preaching. The Holy Spirit gives an awareness of power, not your own, thrilling through the whole of your being and an indescribable joy. You are a man possessed and you are taken hold of and taken up. He goes on to say, we become a spectator of our own preaching as we observe what God is doing in us and through us. And we are aware this is going way beyond my limited abilities to speak to others. Men, how desperately we need the power of the Holy Spirit to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we do, it comes with great energy... He comes with great energy and produces great fervency. John Murray is one of the great theologians of the church, Scottish Presbyterian professor at Westminster Theological Seminary. John Murray had this to say about preaching. Preaching without passion is not preaching at all. John Murray would never be mistaken for a wild-eyed enthusiast, high church Scottish Presbyterian, and yet John Murray, a student of the Word of God, understood that there must be this element in our preaching. However it comes through our temperament and personality, however it is expressed, if there is no passion, there is no preaching. J.W. Alexander, another Princetonian professor who wrote in his book, Thoughts on Preaching, he writes, the whole mass of truth by the sudden passion of the preacher is made red hot and burns its way into the soul of the listener. That's J.W. Alexander. He goes on to talk about in Thoughts on Preaching, this is very interesting, have two preachers preach one after the other and have them both preach the very same message. Have them both use the same manuscript. 
Have them both use the same outline. Have them both use the same cross-references. Everything is the same in the two sermons. The first sermon will be preached without passion. The second sermon will be preached with passion. J.W. Alexander argues that the first sermon will be ineffective and will fall upon deaf ears. But the second sermon will burn its way into the souls of men. R.C. Sproul states, dispassionate preaching is... How do you think he'll finish this sentence? Dispassionate preaching is... A lie. It's a lie. You don't really believe this. You may believe it intellectually, but it has not gripped your own soul. Well, I think I need to stop here. I would love to continue the series (laughs) and to keep this going But I think I should stop here at this point. What have we said? Number one, there must be the preeminence of Christ in our preaching. He will not share the spotlight with anyone else. Certainly not with a preacher. And we have looked at the power of the Holy Spirit and how desperately we need the supernatural energy of the third person of the Godhead to enable us to magnify the second person of the Godhead to the glory of the first person of the Godhead. And it is in the simple preaching of the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit that God has chosen to work upon this earth and to change and to alter the course of human history. After Luther stood at the Diet of Worms, after Luther wrote his treatises that began to create shock waves throughout Europe, some young men came to Luther and asked him, explain the Reformation. How did you do this? What was your strategy? Luther said this, I simply taught, preached, wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then I slept. And the Word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince and never an emperor inflicted such damage upon it. I did nothing. The Word did it all. Whatever God is doing in your ministry, this needs to be your testimony and mine as well. I simply preached, taught, wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then I slept. And while I slept, the Word did its work. I did nothing. The Word did it all. May this be your confidence. May this be my confidence this day.
Let us pray. Father, these words we take to heart that Paul has written to the Corinthians. They, they are like red-hot nails driven into the board of our hearts and minds. Lord, secure them permanently. May, may this text, may these words affect the direction of our ministries for the rest of our lives. May we never color outside these lines. May we always be anchored and kept on a short leash to these truths. Lord, deliver us from worldly doctrine and from worldly delivery. May we remain supremely committed to the preaching of Jesus Christ and Him crucified in the power of the Holy Spirit and to do so in the manner by which you have prescribed that a man is to herald and to declare the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that you would emblazon this upon our soul. In Jesus' name, amen.